Amen. If you have your Bible with you, would you take it out please and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We'll reference some other scriptures before we get there, but Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 11 is the first scripture that we will read this afternoon. Uh, so grateful for the presence of all, as has been said, in, here in person or joining us streaming online, we're grateful that you're among our number. In a recent poll, hundreds of college students were asked, if you could ask God any question, what would it be? And number one on that list is, why is there so much suffering in the world? And this is a question or something along these lines, a question that I've received a number of times, and I continue to receive this question. And it's on the minds of many, not just college students, because there is so much suffering in the world. But I hope our kids, the ones who grew up here, when they go to college, I hope they have an answer to that, and I hope that we do too when we have the opportunity to speak to people who are experiencing suffering or seeing suffering in the lives of others, and they ask this same question about our great God. And the question is worded, or at least it was in the poll, why is there so much suffering? But I want to suggest this evening that it isn't really the amount of suffering in the world that we generally have a problem with. Instead, it's the kind of suffering that we see. There are types of suffering, I think you would agree, that the vast majority of us aren't just okay with. We, we actively approve of certain kinds of suffering. And you say, really? Well, think about it. Think about, um, for lack of a better uh, example, think of the Hitlers of the world, right? The evil dictators, the murderers, the rapists, the child molesters. Most of us don't have any problem with, with them suffering in one way or another. There's a justice to that. They have caused suffering, and now they suffer in return. And we might disagree on the specifics on what that should look like or the amount of suffering or, or what the just reward is for those things, but I think almost all of us, even those who don't profess to be Bible believers, would say there should be some sort of consequences to those sort of immoral actions, those sins, to put it in, in religious terms. And so all suffering is not the issue, never has been. We all believe that there should be suffering of some kind and to some degree among certain people. And that hints at some sort of objective standard of morality, doesn't it? But we'll, we'll save those thoughts for another lesson. Our problem is not so much suffering in general. It is with what we view as unjust or unfair suffering specifically. And whether that suffering is a little, whether there are a few people who suffer unjustly or whether there's many people who suffer uh, what we view unfairly, that's what really bothers us. And so this afternoon, I want to share some thoughts about what, what we view as unfair suffering. Again, suffering specifically is not the issue. It's this idea of unfair suffering from our perspective. And when it comes to all of the specific cases, um, if you were to come to me and say, well, this happened, and I saw a family that I know of where this happened, I want you to tell me why that happened, why they suffered in that way. I'm not sure that I could give you all of the, the answers in every specific uh, case. And, and we're often, as implied by the PowerPoint, we're often filled with a cloud of thoughts and emotions that makes, makes cold reasoning difficult. And it makes it cold. It makes it cold-hearted to what people are going through. 
But in those times when there is suffering that we view as unfair, there is much that I do know. I know that God is still good and loving and just. I know that He cares for all people, and especially He watches over His people. He watches over Christians. And God has proven that over and over and over in the Bible, and He's proven it over and over in the lives of His saints. He's he's proven it in my own life as well. But beyond that, I don't know the specific reasons in every situation. But I know where to find answers for what I'm, I'm looking for. I'm a Christian. Maybe that's not shocking, right? I'm a Christian, so where do I go for answers? Well, I make no apologies for my answers coming from the Bible. And so these aren't just my reasonable, rational, uh, common sense thoughts. These are some Bible thoughts on unfair suffering. If you're a Christian and someone comes to you with this question or, or any others, don't be ashamed to answer using the Bible. And, and it's not that the Bible is going to be uh, convincing to people who don't believe in it, but, but from that perspective, from your perspective as a Christian, the Bible has answers. And they don't have to agree with your answers to acknowledge that, well, yeah, the Bible does have an answer to this question and many others. I'm convicted that what the Bible says is truth. It is divine truth revealed by the Holy Spirit. And I'm not ashamed of what it says, and I'm not ashamed to use it as an answer. We have a couple of books, at least in our Bible, that wrestle with these ideas. The book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes, both wrestle with the ideas of suffering and what we view as as unfair or unjust suffering. And our recent studies on Sunday morning make this a a good occasion to consider those things because we've already studied those books in a little greater detail. And and if you happen, happen to be here this evening or watching online and you're not a Christian, you might not like the answer that I'm going to give tonight. But but I would ask you to just hear me out. Because at least Christianity, the Bible has an answer that fits with the reality we see in our world. And I would summarize the answer this way. And if you've, if you've been here over the last 12 years of me preaching here, maybe you've heard this phrase before, because this is my one thought answer to this question. We have suffering because we have free will in a fallen world. That's why there is so much suffering, and even what we view as unfair suffering in the world. And And so let's unpack those two concepts, free will and a fallen world. I'm going to consider six causes of suffering uh, this afternoon. And the first half of the explanation is free will. If you're going to have choice, then there have to be choices, right? And our choices are between good and evil so often. If you choose evil, well, the consequence of evil is going to be suffering, whether immediate or later on or even in eternity. So what are the specific causes of suffering? Number one, well, my sin and my own evil choices can cause suffering. I go out uh, drinking, I become drunk, I drive drunk, I wrap my car around a tree. Well, I cause my own suffering. I've violated a biblical principle and now I am suffering because I've violated that principle. And it's not just me who lives in this world, right? We don't walk around in a bubble just by ourselves. No, there are other people out there. And all of those people have free will as well. So sometimes suffering is caused not by my choices, my sins, 
but by the sins of others, their choices. Somebody else goes out drinking. They get drunk. They drive drunk and crash their car into mine. Well, they caused my suffering because of their sin. And that's so clear, we don't really need a lot of Bible verses to tell us about that. But we have a whole book, the book of Proverbs, that tells us this is the kind of suffering that we're going to see in the world. Our issue is not with these crystal clear cases. I sinned, I suffer. Somebody else sinned, I suffer. Or they suffer. It's in those cases where there's not this direct one-for-one relationship. Like a child who is without sin, who has done nothing wrong, and this child suffers or even dies. A good person, uh, someone we view as good, maybe even from a biblical perspective they are good, living a righteous life and, and perhaps they die in a freak accident or they're diagnosed with cancer. Those are the kinds of suffering that bother us. And so where does that kind of suffering, from where does that kind of suffering come? Well, the, the easiest answer, number three, is, is Satan. And there are lots of passages. Um, let me just give you an example from the Gospels, from Acts, the Epistles, and, and Revelation. Luke chapter 13 and verse 17. A woman whom Jesus says, Satan has bound for 18 years. Luke 13, 17. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, uh, Paul says on that occasion, or excuse me, Peter says on that occasion, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. The devil is doing the oppressing there in Acts 10, 38. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, we'll look at that passage in just a moment, Paul's thorn in the flesh is called what? A messenger of Satan. So this is something sent by Satan in order to, to buffet me. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, the church at Smyrna uh, is under consideration. And there were some there, the Spirit says, who are going to be thrown in prison by the devil. Now, the devil didn't literally come down in some human form and throw them into prison, but it was the working of Satan, the working of the devil, the adversary, that ended up with them being in prison. And so when we think about suffering, suffering is certainly a cause that comes from Satan. So my sin, other sins, and Satan. But also there's the reality that we find here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 11. And that's what the wise man calls time and chance. Read that with me, verse 11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. And, and we've talked about this in our Bible classes. The race usually is to the swift and the battle usually to the strong. That's the book of Proverbs. But the wise man looks around at his world and he says, but it's not 100% of the time. Sometimes the fastest doesn't win. Sometimes the strongest doesn't win the battle. But time and chance happen to them all. One of those things that people say in times of suffering when uh, maybe we don't know what to say is, is everything happens for a reason. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Everything happens for a reason. This passage says everything doesn't always happen for a reason. God knows all. God sees all. But sometimes God allows the natural world to function naturally in the corrupted, cursed state that it is in. Time and chance 
happen to us all. And sometimes things just don't work out. And it's not really anybody's fault. It's just the reality of the world in which we live. And the reality of our world is, number five, that that we live in a fallen world. That can be traced back to that reality. We have free will, and that free will is expressed in a world that, that is no longer perfect. That's the second part of our summation equation, right? Suffering sometimes comes, not as a result of specific choices, but as a result of living in a world that is dealing with the consequences of sin. And this world is dealing with those consequences. We lived in a fallen, cursed world. It was once perfect, but it is no longer perfect. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sin, remember that there are curses that are placed upon Satan. There's curses that are placed... There are curses that are placed on Eve... And then there are curses that are placed on Adam. And to Adam, God says, Cursed is the ground for your sake. Now that's a curse toward Adam, but is Adam the only one that's being cursed there? It's the ground is going to be cursed. And thorns and thistles are going to be produced. And you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. Adam worked before he worked in the garden. And that work was perfect. That work, if I'm going to put into these trees and take care of this garden, everything's going to produce exactly the way it ought to. I came from a family of farmers in West Texas. Let me tell you, you can work by the sweat of your brow, but it doesn't always mean that the crops are going to come in. We may have some, we have some watching from West Texas sometimes. They're in the midst of a drought right now. And no matter how good and righteous, no matter how hard those folks are working, the ground is cursed and it's not going to produce this year the way it has in others. That's the world in which we live. And I don't know that we have to spend a lot of time convincing people of that. A reasonable person looks at our world and we see all of the beauty and wonder and majesty of of the created world and we see that it was too great. It is too great to be formed by chance. But at the same time, it is too broken to be the final and perfect work of a perfect God. And the answer to that, I believe, is explained in the Bible. This world was once perfect, but it is now fallen, to use the religious term, from that state. And it retains many qualities of its original splendor, but it is broken enough to remind us that this is not how things were created or meant to be by God. And and that matches the reality that we experience every single day. We live in a world of wonder where we get these glimpses of God, right? And yet at the same time, this world can turn inexplicably ugly at the drop of a hat. As wonderful as the eye is, um, the eye is one of those things that we use as evidence for a creator, a confirmation of design that this lens in our eye is so much superior to anything man can create. And yet sometimes people still go blind. And everyone's eyes, if they live long enough, begin to blur and break down. And so even someone with perfect vision, like me, eventually, if I live long enough, I'm going to lose that, right? Even if my vision were as great as Adam's when he was originally created, I live in a world where that's going to break down. And in Romans chapter 8, if you want to turn over there, um, I've had several lengthy discussions with a couple of brothers about this passage. 
In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, let's read down through verse 22. I believe in this passage, and this is what we have discussed together, that Paul confirms this line of thinking when he describes our hope and suffering by comparing it with the suffering of the created world. And I believe in so doing, he confirms what we already know. The, the creation has been subjected to the same kinds of frustrations that we as human beings have been subjected to. And the consequence is our suffering. And so let's read this together. Verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now put that in the back of your mind. We'll come back to that. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. This is, this is not what the created world was designed for, not what it chose, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Even this creation is is suffering under um, the curse of sin. It's subject to the same kinds of frustrations because of sin as we are. C.S. Lewis, uh, in a couple of his books actually, calls it the megaphone of God. Um, the megaphone of God, and perhaps that implies that God is the one shouting from behind the megaphone. Um, It's a good image. I would suggest instead it's the siren of God. Uh, If you're driving down the highway and you hear a siren, what do you think? Oh, well, something good must be happening. No, you know something is wrong, right? There's a fire or there's an ambulance or somebody's breaking the law. And so a siren warns us that that something is wrong. Uh, Maybe in in different times we think about a siren warning that bombs might be coming or a siren warning that a tornado is on its way. A siren signals to us that that not everything is right. And I believe that's exactly what the creation does. And, And if you think about it, that's really kind of amazing that the creation remains wonderful enough to prove to us that there is a God And yet it's broken enough to show us that this is not how things were meant to be. That's the world that we live in. But there is a sixth cause of suffering, and this is the one through the years we've talked about the most, and that is the allowance of God himself. And this makes us the most uneasy. That God allows and uses suffering for his purposes. And sometimes God and Satan use the same event for good or evil based on how we respond to that event. Job chapters 1 and 2 is a powerful example of that as we've already studied together. Satan had in mind how he was going to use Job to prove God wrong. God had in mind how he was going to allow Job to prove him right. But maybe a New Testament example would be 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We've already referenced this passage, but let's turn there together. Second Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. The Apostle Paul says, "...and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations..." 
A thorn in the flesh was given to me. By whom? A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And concerning this thing, this thing from Satan, I I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, now Paul's going to make application, but see what he said so far. He says, this was a messenger of Satan. It came from Satan, and yet the Lord did not remove it because the Lord says, I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it so that my grace might be seen and my strength might, might, might be made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so this thing that Satan intended to discourage Paul ended up being something that caused him to rely on God even more. Maybe a, a super clear example of this uh, is, uh, is Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, uh, where Joseph is talking to his brothers, and he says, you meant evil against me. Your choice was to cause me to suffer. That's why you threw me in a pit. That's why you sold me into slavery. But God meant it for good. And it was the choices of his brothers that led down that path. But it was God who was able to use those choices to bring about His good. So God can use our suffering for our good. And that doesn't make God cruel. Like any parent, that's who God is as our Father. He understands that pain, even suffering, is a part of that process of growth. As a father, I don't want to shield my daughters from all pain. Now, I do, right? But I know that's not what's best for them. To shield them from all pain, that they never experience anything negative in their life? What kind of adult are they going to turn into if that's the way they're raised? Maybe a simple example to show this is is, uh, when I taught them to ride their bikes. Um, I don't know what process you went through to teach your children how to ride a bike. My process, flawed though it might be, judge me if you must, so we'd take the training wheels off, um, and I would get beside them, and I would, I would literally run beside them, right? And so I would run, you know, I'm with Brooklyn, I'm running, and then I'm running, and, and usually they couldn't get going fast enough where I have to all-out sprint, but I have my hand on their back, right? And then after a while, what do I have to do? Well, you know, if they're 19 and they're riding their bike, I can't be running beside them with my hand on their back. That's not the way it works, right? Eventually, I have to let go. And I stay there and I'm running beside them and eventually what do I have to do? I have to stop running and let them go off on their own. And what happens? Well, uh, with Brooklyn, uh, I'm, in fact I was still running beside her and she's getting to going pretty fast. She takes a turn too sharp. She goes down into the grass and you should have seen the look of betrayal that was all over her face. I thought you were there. What were you doing? You know, you're running beside me and you didn't catch me? Had I betrayed her? Well, it felt like it. I'm suffering. I'm hurting. I fell, right? But this is part of the process. If you're going to learn how to ride a bike, this is what we have to go through. And there is a big difference between me, a hand on her back, running beside her. Not great, but I was doing it, right? 
There's a big difference between that and her falling and me running beside her and saying, hey, watch this, and pushing her over. There's a big difference between those two things, right? And so God allows us to suffer. And sometimes that suffering is for our good, but that doesn't make God cruel. And I think we can see that. We can see that when we take the world and all suffering and we try and narrow our focus down to a little bit of pain. And though that concept is is totally contrary to our culture's view of suffering, that is a biblical concept. In our culture, any suffering that leads to unhappiness, uh, a lack of pleasure, well, well, that's evil and that's wrong. And the fact is... Ironically, we experience less physical pain and suffering than virtually any people in any period of time in any place in the world. We live incredibly comfortably, right? Um, Just think about laying down in your bed tonight and then how you feel when, I was talking with somebody yesterday about this, how you feel when you sleep on a different bed. You're still sleeping in a bed with multiple pillows and all those sorts of things in an air-conditioned house you think about that. We, we don't experience a ton of pain in our time as human beings. And so we all should be perfectly happy, right? We, we don't suffer, so we should be happy. And yet the statistics, this is worldly statistics, show that we are perhaps more discontent than we have ever been. Sometimes a little suffering is just what we need to get us where we need to be. And sometimes even a lot of suffering is what we need to drive us closer to our God, to remind us of what's really important. Uh, One of the happiest moments of my childhood was after our house almost burned down. My dad left some chicken on too long. And we were forced into this tiny little house, uh, half the square footage of our already modest home, no TV, no Internet. I was sleeping in the dining room but we were all forced together. And that suffering led to our good on a very limited and specific scale. We we were closer to one another because of what we suffered. And the same reasoning applies even if we broaden it out more generally. Um, You're familiar with James chapter 1. Let's turn over there, James chapter 1. We'll read these quickly. James chapter 1. And verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's, that's a Christian concept right there. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance, but let patience have its perfect work that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. These trials produce something in us. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you want to turn over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Is that suffering? Yes. Yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not, that we should not what? That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. We have the sentence of death in ourselves, 
But that was so that we might trust in God instead of ourselves. And then one more example, Romans chapter 5. Uh, Romans chapter 5, and we'll hang out in Romans for a few minutes. Romans chapter 5 and verse 3. We have access to God through faith, into grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Then verse 3, and not only that, but we also glory, not just in God's grace and His blessings, we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. Sometimes, what all of these passages teach us, sometimes we need to be reminded that we can't fix everything ourselves. We need to be reminded that we need God and we need to trust in Him. We have to be refined by Him. No, everything doesn't happen for a reason, but God can use anything to accomplish His purposes in our lives, including suffering. He can use suffering to accomplish His purposes. And maybe we see that most clearly in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Um, this is a familiar passage to most in the religious world. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Now we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Now if I was just preaching out of this one passage, I would say there are five things that we can learn from this text. But I'm going to cut out three, okay? Two things that we need to emphasize in this text. Number one, this is a promise. But it is a promise only to those who love God, only those who have answered the call of His purpose. And so if you're not right with God, if you're not seeking to do His will in love, do not expect this assurance. You don't have this promise and while God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, you have no specific promises, you have no specific protection from God. If your will dictates more of your life than His will does, that's by your choice that you've chosen not to answer His call, you've chosen not to love Him in this sense. And then the second thing that we need to see it's not that everything is good, but it's for our good. Sin is still sin. Evil is still evil. And it's not magically changed into something else. But God is great enough to use something that is wrong for our good or for the good of others. Again, we just recently studied from the book of Job. And God doesn't tell Job all of the whys of his suffering. And yet in some ways we're put in the position of God because we know the whys. If I were to ask you to list all of the reasons why Job suffered, I think you would be able to do that. But God doesn't tell Job those things. Any of the details of his circumstances or why this is happening to him. He doesn't tell Job, for example, that Satan caused this suffering. He doesn't tell Job that he will come out of this suffering with more faith because of what he's gone through. He doesn't tell Job that the blessings he's going to receive after suffering, if he remains faithful, are even greater than what he had before. 
And he doesn't tell Job, maybe most powerfully of all, that his suffering, that Job's suffering, will serve to help others who are suffering for thousands of years, including helping me, including helping you. And yet, from our perspective, we can see all of those things about the book of Job. And that Job's suffering fulfilled purposes beyond what he saw, and it was for reasons beyond what he could understand or see. God doesn't tell Job any of that. Instead, he reminds Job that he is all-powerful and that Job needs to trust him. That's it. Because that's the situation we're in, isn't it? We are not told all of the reasons for our suffering specifically. But our choice remains the same as Job's. We need to be reminded that God is all-powerful and that we just need to trust Him. And seeing the reasons behind Job's suffering should be helpful to us in knowing that. Who knows how God can or will use our suffering or the suffering of others to bring about His good? Your righteous suffering, if you suffer as Job did, that might influence someone else, not just in this life, but for eternity. Someone else's suffering might elicit the correct response in me so that I might be who God has called me to be. My suffering might be so I can help someone else someday who's going through the same thing that I have been through, but they don't have the faith in God that I have. And so this provides me an opportunity to share that faith with them. And yet in all of those instances, we do not and cannot see that in the moment. Instead, we have to have faith that God can and will turn it into something good. In Job and Ecclesiastes especially, it is not so much a matter of why we suffer. That's not really the issue. It's how we suffer. How will I respond to suffering when it comes? Can I hold on to my faith and integrity even if I suffer, even if I lose everything else? That's what the book of Job was about. And while that book addresses just about everything that we've talked about thus far, that is the question that God is seeking to answer. How do you suffer when suffering comes? And let me me address young people specifically for just a moment. You sit, sit up and listen for just a second. Many young people face a problem when they truly experience suffering for the first time whether that's loss or grief or a bad relationship or the death of a friend or a loved one or financial hardship or health issues or whatever. And and we don't scoff at their suffering. We shouldn't. Maybe we look at it and say, oh, it's not that bad, but it's real. It's real in that moment, the things that they are suffering. And in those moments, it's not that they don't have academic answers to philosophical paradoxes But so often it's that they aren't equipped to deal with the suffering when it inevitably comes, because it's going to come for all of us. And so suffering shipwrecks the faith of some, but not in the way that we expect. It's not some intellectual problem. It's not some hypothetical sort of thing. It's practical. It's personal. The crisis of faith associated with suffering isn't like 
you know, a missile strike from the edge of earth's atmosphere. Boom, there's suffering and now my faith is gone. It's like a knife fight in a back alley. It's up close and it's personal. It's not, why is there so much suffering in the world? It's, I'm suffering, what do I do? And for those of us who are parents, Christians, who have influence, mentors of others, this is the question that we need to equip our young people for as much as the other. We need to answer that question, how do I deal with suffering? And, and the book of Job is a great place to do just that. And we've talked about that in our Bible studies. But for this evening's lesson, I want to emphasize just one point from Job that we didn't cover in this last time that we went through that book. Job affirms that righteousness is still the right path even if he must suffer in the flesh. He holds fast to his integrity. He has sinned. He will sin again. But in all these things, he affirms the superiority of a righteous life. And he tries to live that life, even under difficult circumstances. And Job sees this as a trial. And at the end of this trial, if he remains righteous, then he will emerge even stronger. And you say, well, now wait a second, is this the same guy who struggled with questioning God and why is this happening to me? Yes, because that's us when we go through suffering. It is not just black and white and easy. It's something that we have to struggle with. It's something that we have to remind ourselves of. And there are lots of passages we could look at in this book, but I want you to just turn to Job chapter 23, if you would. Now, to this point, he's already made some of his great statements of faith. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. I know that my Redeemer lives, and without my flesh, I will see God. He makes these great statements, but, but then in Job 23 and verse 10, he says this. But he, God, knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than necessary food. And God, ultimately, he fulfills this reminder of faith that Job has. This is amazing faith. And it's faith from one who does not have a, a clear a picture as we do of God or eternity. And our focus in all suffering should try and be like the focus of God. And we're reminded of what James says, right? We remember the suffering, the patience of Job. And what was the end intended by the Lord? The end intended was that Job should be blessed, even through that suffering. But there is a greater example than Job. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example of unfair suffering. Maybe... Uh, in some ways, he's the only example among those of us who've lived 33 years on earth, for sure, right? It was unfair. Any suffering, if you want to put it in those terms, that Jesus went through. And some say, well, yeah, but that's different, right? You think about Jesus, you think about him, he only lived and suffered on earth for a few years 
And then he died. And he knew. He knew going into that that he was going to rise from the dead and he was going to go back to heaven. I brought Jesus up to someone one time and that was basically their response. Yeah, but he knew ahead of time what was going to happen. He's just going to be here a little while. Then he's going to die and then he's going to raise from the dead. That's not like me. What? Exactly. It is like us. Or at least it should be. That's the perspective of death and suffering that all who belong to Christ should have. We need to keep this kind of eternal perspective. And sometimes we even express it in these kinds of physical terms. Well, I thought I had more time. Or, you know, they were so young. Well, we are all young compared to eternity. And this life is not to be the be-all and end-all of our existence. There is more to come. And it is a better to come for the faithful. And this life is not intended to be anything more than something temporary. Even our bodies that decay, and certainly not our spirits, these are not our own. These are on loan from God. And suffering reminds us that this world is not our home. That there is somewhere better available. And it points us back to God. Or it should. Any suffering should point us back to God and back to eternity. Because this world falls short of perfection so far short but there is a place where you and I can go that doesn't heaven is sometimes hard to imagine hell isn't (laughs) maybe because life here generally has more in common with hell than heaven understand what I mean by that hell is a place of Sorrow and pain and darkness and death and suffering. In fact, some of the most powerful biblical descriptions of heaven is that it's a place without those things. We sing about that. No tears in heaven and no sorrow and no sin and no death or anything that says or practices a lie. No suffering in heaven. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, of course, God is added to those things and His presence and everything that comes from His presence is what makes heaven, heaven. But in those negative terms, heaven is the place where there is no suffering. I want you to turn back one more time to Romans chapter 8 and then the lesson will be yours. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Paul wrote this. Paul suffered. And the glory that was going to be revealed in Paul was not worthy to be compared with his sufferings. And and I would say the same would be true of other mighty men of faith, uh, The glory that was going to be revealed in Jeremiah was not worthy to be compared with his suffering. It was not worthy to be compared with the, the sufferings of Job. And I do not say this lightly. Perhaps there is a sense in which it is not worthy to be compared with Christ's 
suffering. Because that's why he came. Jesus compared the suffering that he would have to go through with the glory that could be revealed in us. And he said, that's a decision I make a hundred out of a hundred times. I am willing to suffer for you and for me. Because it was worth it to him and to us for him to suffer. And if we can help you in some way this evening to make it to that place where there is no suffering and all the questions are answered, why don't you come and put Christ on in baptism that you might have the promises that apply to those who love God. And if you're already a Christian and you need help going through a period of darkness and trial and suffering in your life, and we can help you in some way with that, why don't you come now while together we stand and while we sing. Help my father.